Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's your Trafalgadorian alien wizard, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your captured alien porn star, uh, Jake. And it's me, Kilgore Trout. Ooh, I like to write all the good ones. Have you heard of the one about the aliens that make a machine that makes men pee? But they pee too much in the bolt. That's not an actual Kilgore Trout premise. And today we have a special favorite guest on the stream my dear friend andrew yakira uh he is um a man who has worked in publishing for quite some time at one point he's worked as an editor at penguin random house that's correct and uh and is continuing to do publishing consultancy work and things like that and uh he's uh he's as jake called it Jake said, we need to get a book guy. And I said, I know. <laughs> to be a fair, guy. I said, oh, words hurt my brain. Ew. Where's the anime boobs? I don't g- g- get it. And then I tried to eat my Nintendo Switch Joy-Con because I was right. so scared at the flat letters on the page. <laughs> so, Andrew, Andrew, thank you so much for being here. And, uh, of course, all, there are other reasons, you know, one, one reason... I think I even saw you respond. There was like a, tw- a Twitter thing about Vonnegut, and I saw your response, so it felt serendipitous a little bit. I was trying to be a little Baconan about everything. I was Ooh. trying to, to understand my caress and definitely take these signs as a as a situ- a wampalomp or whatever it's called, <laughs> that you're supposed to be a part of this thing. Uh, but also, you do have... Uh, what do you have tattooed on you? I have the word uh, stat tattooed on my body in Vonnegut's handwriting. Ah, um, very he good. He has a really great quote about how stet is the most powerful word in an editor's vocabulary, and it basically means that you let it stand. That's what stet means. So um, you're basically just not touching the author's work in ah, words. So, that's fantastic. So and thanks for having me on. It's really yeah. great to be on. Uh, Holden asked me to be on the podcast because I read at least five of Vonnegut's books about a decade ago <laughs> and that I've worked in publishing. And Jake, uh, if it's any sympathy, there are cartoon buttholes in Vonnegut's work. So yeah. you'll get to enjoy that. Okay. Can I, uh, I right <laughs> off the bat, um, yes, please. I don't think we'll get to it in this uh, episode, but I got an audio book of Breakfast of Champions and it was read by <laughs> John Malkovich. 
<laughs> and so they're going into the book and then there'd be to and the book is filled with all these like drawings in Vonnegut's classic sketchy style. And so while he's reading you you know it'd be it would be John Malkovich being like and so in uh human terms shit came out of the butthole and a butthole looks like this. And then there is a drawing of a 12-point asterisk that does indeed resemble a human butthole. <laughs> I didn't know this exists. And it's I really amazing. Want it it's a truly surreal experience. Also, John Malkovich takes way too much. He chews it up way too much when it's time to uh, do the voice of a black character in oh, uh, no. the Midwest. <laughs> really just relishes that moment. <laughs> But if you have an Audible account that you've been sitting on because everybody has one of those, yes, definitely 100%. pick up John Malkovich reading Breakfast of Champions. So we always like to start with the gush, and I think we should definitely start with the gush here because as I start to do this, by the oh, before I even do that, this episode is Patreon sponsored by Gabriel Tyndall. Gabriel Tyndall says, I don't produce anything to promote, but I would like it if you guys gave a shout out to my wife, Amber, and daughter, Gwendolyn. I couldn't ask for a better person to spend my life with or a sweeter baby, who's probably a young adult at this point for how long ago this was requested. So you're welcome. (laughs) And uh, we're happy to do it. And thank you for your patronage, Gabriel. And now we can start with the gush. It's really nice to hear a message of uh, faithfulness in marriage and uh, love and dedication towards one's children. Mm-hmm. On a side topic, let's talk about Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> Please. So I, I was thinking so much Yee. about <laughs> I was thinking so much about my my relationship to this author. I think for most people, it really springs about in a big way in college, but definitely high school as well. I'm pretty sure I read. Slaughterhouse-Five for high school, but I could be wrong on that. I do remember reading it at least in high school. I remember actually approaching my father. He had a lot of books. He's like, it's a bit of a library, my parents' house. They, he's got a one room that's just, just bookshelf after bookshelf and another room that is largely bookshelves filled with books. And I was like, oh, I heard like Kurt Vonnegut is a good author. Do you have anything by him? And he like walked me to this entire <laughs> row of a bookshelf. <laughs> And had like everything. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I got to experience a lot of that there. Uh, Definitely Slaughterhouse-Five was the first one I read. And I thought it was amazing, but I also wasn't a big sci-fi guy. And I'm really excited to talk about this because it is more applicable to Wizard and the Bruiser than I thought in the sense that sci-fi is so inherent in his work. And also it is such a comment on the way people viewed science fiction during that time. On He, he, in a way, legitimized, helped to legitimize the uh, genre in a lot of ways, but also used it in this bizarre way to just get a lot of points across. It was very allegorical in his work. Either way, I digress. I had one very specific great memory of a road trip I took from Tallahassee to my friend's house in DeLand, Florida. And I like to read books out loud to people on road trips. I know it's weird, but it's very enjoyable. And I read all of Breakfast of Champions on that road trip. Uh, there and back and it was such a beautiful experience and we'll get to Breakfast of Champions more next week but I just think Vonnegut's always been this one of those just go-to authors uh, for me and I've always loved how how much heart and how much devastation existed in his work and how much playfulness I mean even reading so I read Cat's Cradle this week and even just the way he does chapters is so crazy it was like a chapter a page and everything, you just never knew what you were going to get. And it just constantly moved in these interesting, bizarre ways. The way he plays with structure. The way he, pl- you know, 
the way he plays with like form and repetition, I, I always really dug. And definitely is the kind of writer where you know you read Slaughterhouse Five when you're a young man. And it means one thing, and then you read it several years later, and I think it means something quite else. And and then I start digging into his political thoughts and his viewpoints on religion and things like that. And there's a lot of like unbelievable stuff that he said back in the 70s that could not be more applicable today. And I think, Jake, you had a sense of that doing research this week as well. Oh, it was heartbreaking reading his works and his stuff now. Um because, you know, the things that he railed against, the uh, absurdities of government violence, of uh, the desperation of the common person, just uh, things as, as as simple as just, you know, for-profit health care are all things that he turned his critical eye towards. And they were, you know, he was seeing like, hey, this stuff is going to be important and this is crude and needlessly a uh, source of suffering. And it's just as true today as it ever was, you know, uh even in his early works, uh, his first book, Player Piano, uh, was about how automation will someday, like, in some far-off future, not quite yet, will alienate people from their life's work and, you know, create this kind of underclass society and overclass society where people are just managing the machinery and the people that used to do the labor are just going to be direct. You know, all this, it's just, just everything. Right, am relevant. I right, Jeff Bezos? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, Bezos. I'm coming for you. I do want to say that um, <laughs> we're going to be very reverent of Vonnegut. And uh, one of the things is is uh, his writing style is very truncated. He uses a lot of common language. He uses a lot of sci-fi tropes. He kind of avoids a lot of uh, florid kind of meandering stuff. He does novel things with chapter structure. He does a lot of things to keep a reader's attention. And so for a lot of dudes, maybe say like, you know, uh, straight white dudes who are reading him for the first time, uh, they're the first author that they have to be assigned in class that they can actually get, that they can actually follow. Mm. It's full of like blood and sex and horror and like, you know, and cool philosophizing. And so... Vonnegut gets kind of this weird reputation as being a literary figure, but also, you know, if uh, there's like enough anecdotes and stuff online where it's like, yo, if your Tinder profile just says you've read Fight Club and Slaughterhouse Five and Catcher <laughs> in the Rye, get the fu- like, don't don't click yes. So there is that reputation too. He is the bit of the palinuk of of the <laughs> six, like bit. late sixties, early seventies, a little bit. I could see that. Um, J- Drew, now Drew, what would you say your relationship was, you know, kind of with this author and your sphere and your background and in, in, with books and everything? Yeah, I always just, well, I mean, a lot of what Jake was saying is really hits home for me because of the structure that he uses and the words that he uses and the language he uses to, to write is just so accessible because it is so straightforward. And it's he has a background as a journalist, and I think that influenced yes. his work a lot. And it's very self-taught. Yeah, self-taught writer, just reading and, and writing and just writing. And that's um, what made him really prolific, too, is he's just one of those writers who's just always writing. So he always has a book coming out, which is why he has more books than even someone who considers themselves a fan could actually sit down and stomach at one point in time. <laughs> but um, he really was like, I think the the thing that the tweet that brought you uh, to me on Vonnegut was me. I was just kind of sitting around my house, staring at the wall. Like we do a lot these days. <laughs> 
And um, he really was just like the proto troll. Like I, I always wonder if if Vonnegut would have hated Twitter or been the best tweeter in the world if he had lived to see Twitter or Twitter or maybe both. He might have hated it and also been really great at it. But the thing that that made just me say that just the idea of Vonnegut posting tweets talking about how like Nancy Pelosi shits out her doo doo ass is already <laughs> could too have been weird so of a good. vision that I do not want to be. I do not want to realize. <laughs> but the thing that made me think of him as the proto troll was I thought about in his um, in his one of his books he gives all of his previous books a, a letter grade <laughs> and he uh, it's Palm Sunday is the book that he does this in and as you get to the bottom of the list Palm Sunday is given a C so the book that you're ostensibly reading right now is a C so he's basically like you can finish this book or not I'm not really too concerned if it's not my best work go and read right. Slaughterhouse Five or Mother Night right but he's uh, I think one of the I'll just finish on saying that I think my favorite thing that sums up his his humor as well as his kind of morbidity was I, I remembered a, an old quote that I saw of his about how he was going to sue Paul Mall. Um, and he said, here's the news. I'm going to sue Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, manufacturers of Pall Mall cigarettes for a billion bucks. Starting when I was only 12 years old, I have never chain smoked anything but unfiltered <laughs> Pall Malls. And for many years now, right on the package, Brown and Williamson have promised to kill me. But I am 82. Thanks a lot, you dirty rats. The last thing I ever wanted was to be alive when the three most powerful people on the whole planet would be named Bush, Dick, and Colin. <laughs> and that's just him in a nutshell. Like, he's he's simultaneously being like, I love life and I love to laugh at how ridiculous yeah. life is, but also, please kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and let's get into exactly where how he got to that. I have, it is such a tragic trajectory from child into young adulthood to, to create the man that would write something like Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, so let's get into it. We, of course, are talking about Kurt Vonnegut, the American writer that amounted to 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. And that's not counting the posthumous collections that came out, of course, after he passed away. Uh, but first, before we get to all that, we've got a man born a, a, a baby. He was not born a man. He was born a little baby. And well, you know, time is like frozen in amber, so he is that's at true. once. So he was also the adult male version of himself <laughs> at the same time of that birth. Very Trafalmadorian of you. <laughs> Uh, in 1922, in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, a town he would later use in his works to symbolize American values, again, definitely is a element of Cat's Cradle in a hilarious way. I really enjoyed how obsessed the one woman is uh, over meeting fellow Hoosiers. Uh, but either way, his father was an architect, and he was kind of a big deal in their city. His mother was the daughter of a wealthy local brewer, but she also was very interested in writing and tried her hand at it as well. But uh, and they were doing pretty well for so, a while. So this mm -hmm. is what you really have to understand is his parents were like uh, second generation uh, German immigrants and they had hit it big. Uh, yes. His dad was. Uh, it's a weird thing that Indiana prides itself on like avant-garde architecture or at least modern ar architecture and Indianapolis was having a like massive boom and his dad was the architect of tons of like or sorry his grandfather was the architect of tons of notable structures and important buildings in Indianapolis and was like kind of a local celebrity and was very rich uh and his mother Edith was also incredibly wealthy. Like she was the daughter of a vast fortune and um, their marriage is considered one of the great like 
grand like parties of the era. Like I'm talking Great Gatsby style, Edwardian horse and carriage, spats, champagne, rich. And, you know, they lived on uh, in their early years. They had, a, you know, they lived on a mansion. They had servants like these were like the children of American royal uh, Midwest royalty, basically. And two things really fucked them over really bad, which is a one-two punch of uh, prohibition kind of devastating his mom's family fortune. Local brewery, yeah. And Uh, then the Great Depression. The Depression hits. (laughs) And his dad was already, like, not as, you know, he still held the name. Like, his dad was just not as accomplished as his grandfather was, and so... His architecture firm kind of just plodded along on just kind of utilitarian gigs, and he never quite lived up to the grandiosity of uh, his legacy. So, you know, uh, his family used to, you know, took his, their kids were sent to esteemed private schools. They would take, you know, uh, ships across the ocean to visit, you know, grand bohemian cities. And as Kurt is kind of growing up, they're kind of having to deal with the reality of it as their fortunes and status are just gradually getting chipped away and the family dynamics are getting really tight and weird. Dad is getting super checked out. Mom is just getting super hammered, essentially, and doing the escapism thing. I mean, she was never built to be the a housekeeper. She was never part of her life goals. And all of a sudden, she's having to take care of three kids in a modest house And like she's, you know, with an aloof husband and it's just kind of it's just not great. Uh, Vonnegut is placed in, uh, you know, misfortune and misfortune. It's decided he goes to a public school to save money. So like there's this this kind of fallen energy in the house, this disgraced fall from grace that he's absolutely picking up on. And this is essentially where the pessimism starts. Uh, it also is where the avid reading starts. He's reading a wide range of influential work. He's reading, you know, he's reading Pulp Fiction and stuff like that. Not as much, actually. He says in one interview I caught, that wasn't as huge for him. He read it as much as he might read any other kind of thing off of the newsstand. But definitely humor critiques, especially The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Twain was also a pessimist and who wrote humorously and was very skeptical about religion, so he's getting a lot of influence from that. However, it is George Orwell who Kurt Vonnegut would claim as his favorite writer, and it is 1984 as well as Algis Huxley's Brave New World that were huge influences on his first novel, Player Piano, which we'll get to. His mother, again, was a short story writer in her own right. She even went to school for it. I think he was gleaning some stuff off of her. But I was actually really pleased to learn, because this makes so much sense, that it was Henry David Thoreau's writing, which he wrote from the perspective of a child, a very simple, bright, wide-eyed perspective that heavily influenced Vonnegut's writing style. And this is what gives him this modest, straightforward approach that we were talking about previously in a lot of ways, or was highly influential. Which is very interesting, because I feel like, I was thinking about it, and I feel like why I'm drawn to Hemingway is a very similar thing, where Hemingway just writes in these very simple, blunt statements, right? But he mm-hmm. writes it from like more of a grizzled mean man's perspective kind of thing. (laughs) Whereas Vonnegut, kind of like Thoreau, is coming from this other aspect, I think, other end of the spectrum in this childlike way that makes things have a weight all their own. We'll we'll get into that because it's like a very important moment of his when he finally realizes that his story isn't the Hemingway story and that's okay. Yes. It is also just really interesting to me that I'd never heard him cited as having Orwell be one of his um, 
influences, which is really interesting to me because I just think 1984 could technically be classified as sci-fi today, yeah. which you wouldn't really think of it as sci-fi, but it could kind of fall into that genre. And I feel that way a lot about Vonnegut's work too, yep. is that it's called sci-fi, but it has aliens in it and it takes place maybe in a not real timeline or a not real world, but I never think of it as sci-fi. He gets Same. billed as a sci-fi writer a lot, and I don't think of him at all in that way. And what's funny is a sci-fi writer, especially back then, is a dirty word if you're trying to be yeah. taken seriously in, in in a literary sense. What were you going to say, Jake? Uh, it's already dawned on me that in our hilarious comedy podcast, we have not uh, we're just kind of seriously analyzing an author whose work we admire, so I'm just going to throw in... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's it's Boner Bird. Oh my God! Our new wacky <laughs> character, Boner Bird. Oh, 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 this I'm awful. pretty excited right now. <laughs> you have a I full adult wait. man's penis. How do you fly? Oh, oh my God! I fly so horny. <laughs> oh, Boner Bird. <laughs> <laughs> I hate everything right now. All right, <laughs> moving right along. Uh, let's talk about this very important art <laughs> author's work. In college, uh, yeah, we're moving on to college. Okay, okay I think, no, wait. Right? So, so let me break this down. Break it um, down for one me. One of the man. formative things in his childhood, besides his parents' weird tensions and shame, is the fact that his relationship with his siblings. He's the youngest of three, and his oldest brother is Bernard Vonnegut, who almost right out the gate is a scientific, just obsessive. He does right. experiments in his home. He plays with chemicals. He does little electricity experiments and he gets all the attention in the house as the golden one. The one that is, you know, not uh, dallying in the arts. The one who's learning the practical sciences. The one who will basically save the family because he's dedicating himself to a true craft. And he's, or you know, whatever, uh, uh, study. His middle sister, Alice, is, you know, the emotional one. But like also, but she's also living in Bernard's shadow. And the only thing that really sets him as uh kind of makes him unique is he's a bit of a jokester at the dinner table he like is sarcastic and he gets his sister to laugh which then gets his parents to laugh and that's how he learns to get attention um in high school he immediately takes to the school newspaper the high school paper and he starts writing like funny little op-ed pieces and covers school sports and he kind of really loves journalism he loves expressing his opinions he loves he likes being getting the attention heard. yeah he likes he also likes the fact that if he writes dog shit he'll hear about it too mm -hmm. um his grades weren't fantastic but you know he has a lot of like family legacy and the he comes up when it's time for him to go to college that you know where's he gonna go he uh he tries to get into harvard he tries to get into yale but the family has roots at cornell and it's his brother who pushes him to study physics at Cornell, yes. even though that's not really what he's uh, kind of tuned into. It's, you know, Bernard is the golden child and the family needs help. And the only way to do that is to study something practical. And boy, does he hate the shit out of it. So he, he ends get, up he at literally school. gets um, right before it's time for him to pick a college. He actually gets a job offer from a real newspaper in Indianapolis. Yeah. And that's what he really wants to do. But for the sake of his family, he goes to Cornell to study physics, which as speaking personally. And again, as part of the things that make this author resonate with young men. Uh, if you're in a college you didn't quite want to go to, but you just kind of went with the winds and you're studying a major you don't really care about, 
you end up kind of being a fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said Cornell was a boozy dream, partly because of the booze itself and partly because I was enrolled in courses I had no talent for. Being drunk was utterly acceptable. That's when I first decided this country was crazy. He also, but he does end up working, uh, uh, writing for the college paper, The Sun. He, he's working with the tenets of journalism and is writing throughout his life. All these things he's learning from his time working on The Sun. Uh, these things are get the facts right, compose straightforward declarative sentences, and know the audience. He says he's got all of his education from The Sun. As part, so The Sun actually has one of, it's one of the longest running continuously published student papers in the history of America. It is very competitive. It is an extreme um, work schedule, and it's very much a thing you can get lost into. There was actually a rival publication called the Cornell Widow, which was the like kind of the national lampoon of Cornell. And they would constantly like go back and forth against each other uh, because the sun would have like kind of slice of life op-ed pieces, kind of opinion pieces, and they would poke jabs at the Cornell Widow. And one of Vonnegut's biggest rivals at the Widow was a guy named Knox Berger, who would later become... <laughs> His like one of his best allies in the publishing world and was a huge lifeline for him in his early career. Another thing that kind of got him in trouble, though, was he was at the beginning. This was when World War Two was ramping up in the 1930s. Yeah. Oh, we'll die about that. Dude. He published <laughs> tons of articles that were against America's involvement in the war. He was yes. very torn. Uh, he faced his parents and a lot of his relatives faced a lot of anti-German sentiments back in Indianapolis. Um, there was one I read called Well All Right that voiced a pacifist view in terms of getting involved in the war. That's the name of the column. The uh, well, oh, well All Right was the full column. Oh, okay, that wasn't just a one-time article. I read one of those columns that, that, that expressed this. He was actually initially a member of the Reserve Officers Training Corps, but because of his... Oh, you're talking about ROTC. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm talking about ROTC. Join the ROTC, fight the Nazis. Because of his... Uh, these writings, he ended up getting essentially demoted or removed from that and uh, ends up in a far different situation. But he's doing like what people were doing. And this is why Slaughterhouse, big part of why Slaughterhouse Five is becomes the powerhouse that it, it was. He is essentially writing about the anti-war sentiment that most people wouldn't feel and be screaming about for another two decades uh, due to the Vietnam War. He's screaming this during World War II. He was he, that that makes him does make him the ultimate hipster. He was be, he was being anti-government about war, going to war before anyone else. Well, in a way, he was being a humanist before he was even branded for being a humanist, and that is really true. I mean, people say that the the Nazis were like the last real enemy, you know, like every right. war since then has been just an absolute farce. But I think he he stays true to his guns even before he even brands himself with any kind of ism because he's. Uh, it's just the way he feels, and it's who he is. Well, part of that and is also his Dresden, family, which we'll get into. Sorry, Jake, didn't mean to cut oh, you off. Uh, his family actually belonged to a strain of kind of American thought known as the free thinkers. That you know, mm -hmm. before the loftiness of, or before you know, we got to postmodernism and nihilism, and or nihilism. You know what I'm saying? Before, as we understand certain tenets of skepticism, there was the free thinkers movement that was highly skeptical of organized religion and uh, patriotism. And, you know, but it was more of a, a more relaxed kind of bemused kind of thought process than like a militant uh, worldview. 
So he was already primed to be skeptical of, you know, propaganda and religious uh, doctrine, even before, yeah, as a kid, just from his upbringing. So he's working at the paper. He got kicked out of ROTC. And the (laughs) ultimate insult is he's unable to get better than like C's on his papers. So he's placed on academic probation. And and, uh, and and he just wanted to avoid the wait. He knew he was going to get drafted eventually. So he ends up enrolling into the army. So this is this is so a lot of things happen very, very, very quickly yeah. in a short amount of time, driven by, again, going to college. Some people have like big emotional breakthroughs and big, you know, events happening to them. He like he's he failed. He he was a disappointment to his parents. Um, he was surrounded by all these other like brilliant children of privilege. And because he was even kicked out of ROTC, he wasn't even going to get like a, pushed into like an officer's program where he maybe would be a little bit safer. He was just right. a sitting duck. While this is happening, uh, he just is becomes infatuated with one of his former classmates back in grade school. Right. Who he met in kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, Jane Marie who uh, he is just sending her love notes all the time. He is making these overt uh, shows of affection. Um, She's like actually a really accomplished uh, English uh, student at Strathmore and is like getting a graduate's degree. She's doing fantastic. She has like other people, other suitors, uh, but he is hounding her. He is going for it. At one point, he shows up during a time when they were both in Indianapolis and like bears his chest and shows a recently extracted tooth that he made a necklace out of being like, (laughs) I'd go through anything for you, baby. Like (laughs) he's going through some shit right now. (laughs) We said he wasn't Hemingway, but burying your chest is a very Hemingway. That is very Hemingway, especially with a tooth on it. (laughs) They were always kind of going together, but they were never quite an item, even though, you know, as he does this very nerdy thing that, like, depending on how he thinks his prospects are, the letters are either like, yeah, I know you got a lot of stuff going on, but keep me in your thoughts. Or like, baby, I would die for you. You are the reason <laughs> I go to war tomorrow and I can only think of your face. Like, <laughs> Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So he's like estranged a lot of friends. Um, He's estranged his family. And he is going way too hard on his future wife. And with all of that bouncing around in his head, 
it's time for him to enlist and kind of swallow the pill rather than get drafted. And so he's training in medical engineering as part of the Army Specialized Training Program, but was actually ended up getting pushed to an infantry battalion near his hometown as they needed more soldiers to fight in the German invasion. So he's now in the shit. The entire program, he thought he was like, he got one break and that was like, because he was from Cornell and because he did well on his IQ, he was going to get shuffled into a specialist position and avoid the front lines. And as the war effort ramped up, the American government was like, we need less special people and more meat with gun. <laughs> but then don't worry, things get a little bit better. While on leave during this time, he goes home for Mother's Day weekend to find his mother had committed suicide <laughs> via sleeping pill overdose. Yeah. Actually, things get r- way worse. Uh, on Mother's Day. Here's a quote yeah. from Kurt Vonnegut uh, about his parents. There are sad things from my childhood, which I assume have something to do with my sadness. But any sadness I feel now grows out of frustration because I think there is so much we can do. Things that are cheap that we're not doing. It has to do with ideas. I'm an atheist, as I said, and not into funerals. I don't like the idea of them very much, but I finally decided to go visit the graves of my parents, and so I did. There are two stones out there in Indianapolis, and I looked at those two stones side by side, and I just wished I could hear it in my head. I knew so much what I wished, that they had been happier than they were. I w- it would have been so goddamn easy for them to be happier than they were. So that makes me sad. I'm grateful that I learned from them that organized religion is anti-Christian and that racial prejudices are stupid and cruel. I'm grateful, too, that they were good at making jokes. But I also learned a bone-deep sadness from them. Kids will learn anything, you know. Their heads are empty when they're born. Grown-ups can put anything in there. Which I thought was a pretty profound and uh, very upsetting <laughs> quote about... About his parents. So, yeah, okay, everything's fucked for him. Don't worry, though, right? Things get definitely get better, right? Well, he shows up to Fort Bragg <laughs> carrying a typewriter okay. um, because he thought, like Hemingway, he was going to begin his own adventure and wanted something to help him make sense of it and write it. And it was immediately stolen on the first day. <laughs> I, I thought, man, all right. And then three months after, after uh, essentially the, the mom stuff and everything, he is shipped to Europe to fight in the Battle of the Bulge where he was rather quickly captured by the Germans, along with 6,000 other soldiers. 500 were killed. He was sent by boxcar to a POW camp in Dresden with 50 other soldiers as a result, where he made malt syrup for pregnant women and lived in a slaughterhouse. Well, okay, okay, you are blowing past a lot of stuff. <laughs> we'll go back, I just, we'll go back, but I just, there's the, that's the, basically what happens. Technically, it's not the Battle of the Bulge yet. His unit, I'm sorry I'm bad at military terms, uh, his company is brought in to kind of take over for a extremely harried and just weakened uh, division that had been holding the line for at least two years. The whole time as they're loading in, the old the old dogs are just like jeering at him, making fun of him, telling him that they're in for hell. And um, the thing about it is he, this wasn't even the Battle of the Bulge, technic, or, and depending on how you look at it. This was the fall of the front line that led to the quote-unquote bulge because the Nazis were trying to punch through the European line and make it to the ocean to try and get better supply lines. And so the amount of like... It's one of the most cataloged uh, battles in World War II. Mm-hmm. It's, that, it's his unit's uh, defeat that leads to the incursion, that leads to the immediacy and the stakes of the Battle of the Bulge. So 
He was a scout along with uh, his friend uh, Bernard O'Hare, who shows up in Slaughterhouse-Five as the real-life friend of his. Immediately, as they're trying to do reconnaissance, they stumble into an open field, and uh, one of their guys is shot in the field, and they can't get through the tree line to get him. They have to run back. The Germans immediately follow, shell his, shell the shit out of his uh, encampment, and like before he even had a chance to fight, he hears a megaphone being like, put down your guns, like you're surrounded, this is it. <laughs> it's like the most, I mean, it, it couldn't be more perfect for, I mean, obviously he writes about all this stuff. It just feels so exactly like a Kurt Vonnegut novel. And I'm sure that all of this is based on this, but like, it's just like before it can even start, it's over and going in a completely different direction, I guess, is what I mean by that, right? Like everybody starts off trying to do a specific thing and almost immediately that, thing doesn't happen and all of a sudden they have to come to grips with like a completely different reality which of course he does as a prisoner of war this is the most formative thing most likely that happened to him he tries to play it off like it's not he tries to play it off like oh if slaughterhouse five didn't become a bestseller people wouldn't look at me this way but i don't see how this isn't the most formative thing in his life the thing you have to wonder though is that as a budding humanist and as like just knowing the person that he is who who basically enlisted to avoid the inevitable draft and we know that he was against the war you know in his own feelings you know was he relieved that he didn't have to fight was he relieved he didn't I have wonder. to shoot at people and then this is only speculative but you have to wonder i mean he did want to shoot one guy for the love of his life back home but i think that was just to get laid well anyone would do that <laughs> that's not war his dad had an extensive gun collection and as a child vonnegut actually had his own collection of like antique rifles and handguns. Mm. So like he knew how to shoot. He wasn't like uncomfortable with shooting. Yeah. But shooting at a human, <laughs> it's different. <laughs> to be fair, not a human, a Nazi. <laughs> That's true. Good point. But the, the train uh, journey in, is just full of horrifying little indignities as they have to keep rerouting and they're all crammed into a boxcar, shitting in a helmet, uh, dysentery is beginning to spread. And, you know, uh, they're stuck in this on these trains for days on end. They can only sleep rote in a rotating cycle because there's not enough room for everyone to lay down at once. And he's seeing just the charred remains of the battlefields as they're going by. At one point, the train he's on is bombed by the British because they think it's carrying supplies, <laughs> not prisoners. And he's just lucky that his boxcar didn't get fucking blown up. Yeah, he keeps almost getting murdered by the Allies. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> hilariously absurd, just like all of his stuff. Uh, Chewie, do you have anything else to say uh, about the slaughterhouse and everything before we get to the bombing of Dresden? Jake Young. I mean, it, it all happens relatively quickly, uh, but... Dresden as a city is was relatively unscathed by the war effort. It's like Germany's like seventh or eighth biggest city. Uh, it wasn't a center of mass production like other places that were primer targets. It just had a lot of like museum and culture and old buildings. And Vonnegut and was civilians. super impressed by it and civilians. And and Vonnegut was super impressed by the town and thought it was a beautiful place with a lot of. It's seemingly decent people, you know, and but then on February 13th, 1945, British and American bombers leveled the city with high explosives and incendiary bombs, which killed up to 60,000 civilians. Also, some say it's 
25,000, others say it's more, it's kind of, that's ambiguous, but either way, Vonnegut and the other prisoners lived through it only because they were put about 60 feet underground in that slaughterhouse, and it, which was, it was a former meat locker and slaughterhouse, and this saves their lives. Vonnegut said, the destruction of Dresden was my first experience with really fantastic waste. To burn down a habitable city and a beautiful one at that, I was simply impressed by the wastefulness, the terrible wastefulness, the meaninglessness of war. So, and, and which is, and again, this is like one of the, one of the people saying stuff like this at a time when everybody else is like, we had to do it. They were the bad guys. We were the good guys. In a lot of ways, that was true. But this particular bombing will definitely give Vonnegut, push Vonnegut more into the anti-war sentiment because he felt that the American government lied about what they were doing. He felt that this was an unnecessary act of violence uh, on civilians. I think the popular understanding of what happened was that um, the Russians were coming from the east and they had given the allies uh, information that Dresden was going to be the uh, gathering place for German reinforcements and that they had to, if they wanted the eastern advance to continue, they needed that city just wiped out and the allies kind of just went with it. Hey, it's me, Boner Bird. <laughs> oh, uh, I gotta go, guys. I'm getting too sad. <laughs> Boner Bird, you're shrinking. <laughs> it's all flaccid. The firebombing of Dresden really was the pre-nuke. I mean, before you yeah. had nuclear weapons, the way the the thing you would do was firebomb an entire city. And mm-hmm. I, I've heard it said that the the firebombing of Dresden's really overlooked and not reported on as much in World War II and as an event in World War II is well, A, because there were not as many survivors, but B, because of just the kind of bomb that was used on Hiroshima yeah. and Nagasaki. That's really what got the press and what went down in the history books. But the firebombing of Dresden was a, it was a huge atrocity of World War II. And just in addition to the fact that it wasn't, like you said, a military target. Luckily, there weren't any Jewish victims of the bombing because they had all been sent to extermination (laughs) by the Dresden government. Yeah, don't worry. It definitely gets better. After the bombing, Vonnegut's job was to gather and burn remains of the dead and experience. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Never mind. It actually gets worse. It actually gets worse. (laughs) It plays out a lot like uh, it does in Slaughterhouse-Five because it is a deeply autobiographical book. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first task is to... um, gather up the bodies uh, that are uh, just in the houses. One of the most uh, common causes of death wasn't burning. It was that the firebombs sucked the oxygen so quickly and so violently that people were smothered alive, alive in their homes. And he would, uh, the, the prisoners of war would go down into basements and just see people just sitting at chairs perfectly still with no signs of struggle. Here, I got I got a ju- uh, I'm going to call it a juicer whenever I have a really good quote. I got a juicer for you from Vonnegut himself about this. Every day we walked into the city and dug into basements and shelters to get the corpses out as a sanitary measure. When we went into them, a typical shelter in ordinary basement usually looked like a streetcar full of people who simultaneously had heart failure. Just people sitting in their chairs all dead. A firestorm is an amazing thing. It doesn't occur in nature. It's fed by the tornadoes that occur in the midst of it. And there isn't a damn thing to breathe. 
We brought the dead out. They were loaded on wagons and taken to parks, large open areas in the city, which weren't filled with rubble. The Germans got funeral pyres going, burning the bodies to keep them from stinking and from spreading disease. 130,000 corpses were hidden underground. It was a terribly elaborate Easter egg hunt. We went to work through cordons of German soldiers. Civilians didn't get to see what we were up to. After a few days, the city began to smell, and a new technique was invented. Necessity is the mother of invention. We would bust into the shelter, gather up valuables from people's laps without attempting identification, and turn the valuables over to guards. Then soldiers would come with a flamethrower and stand in the door and cremate the people inside. Get the gold and jewelry out and then burn everybody inside. Sounds like Nazis to me. (laughs) So nightmarish. During this work, he witnesses another POW uh, try and steal a jar of pickled green beans from one of the basements. And he's caught and executed just without any ceremony. And that definitely influenced the uh, teapot in Slaughterhouse-Five. This whole time, his family does not know what happened to him. He's just declared missing in action from the front lines. And they think he's dead. So after General George S. Patton captures Leipzig, he and the other prisoners are eva- were evacuated, he being Kurt Vonnegut, and the other prisoners were evacuated on foot to Czechoslovakia and then to a repara- uh, repatriation camp in Le Havre, France, and then finally back to the U.S. where he had a- the gig of typing discharge papers for other soldiers. He was awarded a Purple Heart, of which he said, I, m- I myself was awarded my country's second lowest declaration, a Purple Heart for Frostbite. After the army, he went back to Indianapolis, and this is where he's going to actually start being a writer. But the thing is, and I know it's 45 minutes into the episode before we're actually going to get into really his true writing career, but this is the stuff that feeds into everything else and really makes the man. And today's episode is really about creating the man that wrote all these great books, including Slaughterhouse-Five, and the next episode will be about the effect of that cause. And uh, so here he is now, 22 it is the end of 1945, and he finally does get married to Jane Marie Cox. That's right. She let him look at it and have sex with her, and then they got married finally. Um, and uh, good good for that. And so they end up moving to Chicago. Vonnegut enrolls in the University of Chicago as a graduate student in anthropology and works as a reporter for the Chicago City News Bureau. And it is during this time that the couple had their first child. I couldn't believe how many kids are coming to play during this time. It makes me stressed out to read about. <laughs> oh, don't worry. He wasn't <laughs> the one stressed out about it. <laughs> oh, true. I'm sure. So they later moved to, I never can say it right, Schenectady, New York in 1947, and Vonnegut works at, in PR at General Electric. It's important to note that he never finishes his thesis from the University of Chicago, ah. so he is now a college dropout <laughs> and, and not a PhD. <laughs> he just does a war. He is a war hero, though. He's a war hero, and he can finish at least books. So, also, he got the job at General Electric because his brother worked as a scientist there, ah. working with cryogenics, which comes into later uh, Ice Nine in yes. um, Cat's Cradle. Yes, and uh, his big kind of his brother's big accomplishment is by specially formulating pellets of dry ice, he can like seed clouds and make it rain. And this becomes a big, like spooky, you know, America can control the weather now. Pretty uh, much every, everything he's experienced. He's around all these scientists at general electric and the things that they're excited about are generally just terrifying to him. 
you know? Uh, <laughs> and so, and, and as a fan of science fiction, George, and George Orwell, Orwellian, you know, um, proclivities, proclivities. Yeah. Are seemingly coming true all around him. And that's where he starts pulling together what will eventually be player piano and cat's cradle. But in the meantime, he's selling short stories to magazines such as Collier's and the Saturday evening post. And these are what allow him to eventually quit that job. So he enjoys the comforts of General Electric. It's based uh, Schenectady and tr- uh, nearby Troy, New York, which shows up a lot as Ilium, New York. You know, if you think of uh, the Iliad, it's it, it's a clear reference. He's He likes the money, he likes the stability, and he likes kind of the holistic nature of just having everything taken care of by the company, but he does not gel well with the corporate culture. This is uh, the beginnings of what we think of as you know, the the great American corporation, General Electric, makes everything from washing machines to bombs. And uh, his big deal is to kind of track down stories and pitch them to various magazines. But he still has the dream of being a writer, uh, even though uh, Jane was the one who was actually had a master's in English. But that doesn't matter. Um, she uh, hosted parties with him and uh, kind of just made a nice life for themselves. But he's getting docked on his attitude. He's getting docked on his uh, wardrobe. He's just, you know, he's just making enemies everywhere he can go. But he finally gets a break when his old buddy from Cornell gets one of his story pitches for Collier's and writes back, hey, wait, are you Vonnegut from Cornell? (laughs) Thinking that uh, Vonnegut was doomed because he had pissed off so many people with his articles. (laughs) <laughs> uh, he was like, oh, no, not. I, I better not submit. But then Berger sent him a telegram that's like, hey, you should like work on this story. Like, I, I have good memories. <laughs> like, you should try it out. And even though uh, Knox is you know, a, a busy editor at Collier's Magazine, he works with Kurt and helps hone his writing style and kind of helps him along to kind of mesh what readers want and what Vonnegut wants to write about. Because this is the golden age of magazine fiction. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, Harper's, The New Yorker, all are publishing tons and tons of short fiction. And the skill is to actually get stuff paid for. And so with Berger's help, he starts selling a couple of stories. And all of a sudden, he's getting like a lot of booster money. He's getting what, you know, if he sells four stories in a month, He's making basically eight months worth of pay for General Electric without feeling like he's selling his soul. And as speaking from personal experience, again, once you start getting booster money from a side project, you start goofing (laughs) off a little at your normal job and it ends up with them kind of getting pissed off at you. (laughs) Can we reflect on this for a moment? Because this really is such so indicative of the golden age of publishing. Uh And it's just exactly what I thought and hoped being a book editor would be before I got into it was that I was going to go to the Key West and lock myself in a shack with one of my authors and we were going to bang out the next great American novel together. (laughs) And you're not going to be surprised when I tell you that that's not what modern publishing is like at all. And that there was an era that long ago when you could just quit your day job and move to Cape Cod on your salary that you get selling short stories to a magazine every now and then (laughs) it just makes me sad that that's not possible anymore but you know things change i mean what's it more like now would you say oh it's um a job 
Yeah. <laughs> <That's what it laughs> no, I do, I do love it. I, I speak I speak disparagingly of it only because everyone who everyone is allowed to speak disparagingly of the doing the thing they love for a living. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, this kind of and I mean, this does come into play in his first novel, Player Piano, which is all about automation, all about being what set. Well, I'll just say set in a post third world war near future. The book depicts a dystopia, which is almost totally mechanized, which creates a class conflict. And this novel doesn't make huge waves when it comes out. And it places Vonnegut in the also in the, the very shady category of science fiction writer, which is generally looked down on by other fiction writers. So. Can you speak towards this, Drew, the evolution of the science fiction writer in terms of being taken at all seriously? I know right now I'm reading through the Dune books, so it's making me think about this a lot, because even at the time of those books coming out, that was one of, I think, the major works that solidified science fiction as a respectable genre. Yeah, it was really, and it is interesting, because even, um, you know, friend of the podcast, John Moreno's uh, wife, Zoe's, grandfather was Donald A. Wolheim, or yeah, uh, Donald A. Wolheim of Daw Books. And he was really one of the first people to get science fiction legitimized in a lot of ways, mm. because he he um, he pioneered the mass market paperback format of books, which was a more affordable version of books. So therefore, it kind of tended to lend itself more towards pulpy content and um, just stuff that would appeal to the masses. But um, he really did a lot in sci-fi at an imprint called Ace and then founded his own imprint, Daw Books. And um, just the way he spread science fiction and, and fantasy book, uh, books to the mass market for the first time really helped people to start taking it seriously. And then I think, I, I don't know, I'm sure someone smarter than me could tell you exactly when it happened, but eventually it just meshed itself so much with culture and the modern world that sci-fi and fantasy was something that people would approach from a more, I guess you could call it a literary uh -huh. aspect. Yeah. Vonnegut defended the, <laughs> the genre saying no one can simultaneously or saying he dismissed the idea that no one can simultaneously be a respectable writer and understand how a refrigerator works, that those two things could happen at the same time. <laughs> so essentially yeah. that someone could be very like intellectual about, but I will say, and even he uses sci-fi in a way that I think a lot of people view sci-fi that it's very good for getting points across. It's very good for allegory. It's very good for premises that create interesting ideas that question things philosophically. Whereas it's harder to develop character and do things like that effectively through sci-fi. At least that's what the thought was for the longest time. And, the, and it took a lot of people to legitimize it in a lot of ways. And for him, of course, he uses, and we'll get into more of that, Kilgore Trout and all of this uh, sci-fi stuff to just essentially shoot out these really quick parables that connect with what's happening elsewhere in his, in his, so uh, in his novel. Estranged from his job at General Electric... Uh, he goes on a vacation with Jane to uh, rent a cottage in Cape Cod, which is this famous uh, area in Massachusetts where full of artists and, you know, free thinkers and writers and dramatists, you know, just this this little paradise of creative thought in the in New England. There he meets a 27 year old Norman Mailer who's 
cool, writes books with titles like The Naked and the Dead, has <laughs> lofty thoughts about America, and Vonnegut is just immediately just refreshed after spending so much time with GE suits that he's like, I want to be a full-time writer, and we're moving to Cape Cod, and Jane supports him 100%. And then he does what every author would do if they moved to Cape Cod. He opens up a car dealership. So things in Cape Cod are not going great. They're always. <laughs> well, why else would he open up a car dealership? He's getting angry at his friend Knox Berger, who was his own, like literally the only guy in his corner in the world of magazine publishing for not buying enough stories. Uh, he was hooked up with an agent in New York and he gets mad at them for not selling his work correctly. He's frustrated with uh, how his books aren't selling. He's also struggling a lot. Cat's Cradle, he's struggling with. Ma Mondo, he's that's not coming to him as quickly as player piano. He's getting extremely uh, uh, sidetracked by like like little cultural projects. He becomes like a member of a theater group. Uh, he gets caught up in art projects. Um, and he gets these little get-rich-quick schemes, such as when he goes to Boston to meet with a literary agent, and um, on the way, he sees the brand-new Saab 93 cars being delivered. And, ooh, the guy at the Saab dealership sells him a good story. You know, these <laughs> use front-wheel drive, which makes them great for winners and great for the weather in New England. If you're in New England, you gotta get a Saab, buddy. And look how stylish. Swedish engineering, you know, they make aircrafts, right? And... Kurt is on board. The answer to his money troubles are over. Of course, the rich boho people of Cape Cod are going to love the Saab 93. And so he buys six of them, gathers all of his friends to become investors, keeps saddling uh, Jane with the kids and just completely disengages from home life, hires a local artist to drive around the demonstrator car to advertise it. He writes up, like, advertising copy, buys space. And uh, the issue with the Saab 93 is that it is a uh, two-stroke engine car that uses a ton of oil uh, to keep lubricated. And that oil in winter climates completely gels up and be makes the engine unworkable. <laughs> Can I just say that from the tw perspective of 2020, buying six cars as an investment is just the most horrifying thing that I can think of. <laughs> And so, of course, this car dealership goes belly up by the end of the year. More tragedy strikes around this time. In 1958, Kurt Vonnegut's sister, Alice, dies of cancer just two days after her husband perishes in a freak train accident. And so Vonnegut ends up adopting their three boys. Four. Four. Well, one they only have for a little bit, and then that one goes off to a different family. So that's mainly they had the it's, three. It's actually, well, so... His sister, Alice, who he loved dearly and was, uh, you know, he speaks highly of, speaks, uh, you know, says that uh, in interviews, you know, when I write, I imagined her as my audience, made Vonnegut promise to take the kids, that she wanted them to live with him and Jane. His brother, Bernard, his wife had a lot of uh, lifelong uh, mental health issues that made her unsuitable. And without thinking, Kurt accepted, uh, leaving Jane to take care of what was now seven children, including a bunch of teenage boys that were uh, just exposed to a senseless tragedy in a new city and were prone to acting out, while Kurt still expected the peace and kind of uh, sacred distance to keep working on his writing, writing that from month to month was not helping them pay the bills as much as they needed, especially with seven mouths to feed. The short story market is drying up 
for sure. Supposedly, he bought a television during one of the boom months, sat down and began watching, you know, one of a black and white show of the time. You know, I, I can't remember. Maxwell House's new playhouse of the mind or whatever, you know, <laughs> black and white teleplays were were, were done. And um, immediately realized that the magazine fiction market was fucked because here for free in people's homes every day were professionally written dramatic fiction stories. <laughs> Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So next comes, he, he has to get back to novels to try to make ends meet. And so the next book is not Cat's Cradle, the one he was struggling with since working at General Motors. It is The Sirens of Titan in 1959. And The Sirens of Titan centers around the richest man in America set in the future named Malachi Constant and a Martian invasion of Earth. It deals with questions of, oh, I don't know, maybe free will and how that works with humans, which is like most of his work deals with this concept. And all of the characters in the book are driven by forces outside of their own, and all they can do is make the best of it. And this is because our protagonist learns that all of history is determined by a race of robotic aliens from the planet Tralfamador in order to repair their spaceship and go home. This race would appear in several of Kurt Vonnegut's novels. This is the first appearance. It appears in, they appear in Slaughterhouse Five, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Hocus Pocus, and Timequake, all in different ways, though. And there's a full breakdown you can look at. It, they're, they're repurposed for each book. The book's conclusion for Sirens of Titan is a purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. And according to Vonnegut, the book was all put together in one evening at a party where someone told him he should write another book. So they went into the other room to be alone, and he just talked through the whole thing right then and there, pulling from ponderings of his in recent days. So apparently that's how the whole book came about. I don't know how true that is. But either way, the, again, this is a full-on science fiction novel, which again is not super respected per se, but it does sell okay. And he's moving up a little bit. His next book does not get much attention when it's published in 1961. Mother Night is about an American that goes to Nazi Germany as a double agent and rises up in the regime's highest ranks as a radio propagandist, leading to, to the U.S. not clearing his name. So he commits suicide as a German prisoner, the thing he became after pretending to be it for too long. I really want to check that one out because that's like a really fascinating, terrifying thought that you would pretend to be something for so long. You would Peter Sellers yourself into becoming the thing that, you know, you were, you were doing as a spy. Um, did you read any of these, uh, Drew, Sirens of Titan? Sirens of Titan I read, and I remember enjoying it very much. And I didn't read Mother Night, but it does sound really interesting in the sense that it sounds like it has a really strong plot, which a lot yeah. of his books don't necessarily have. He kind of sure. just 
rambles a lot. And I found that was <laughs> when I was trying to like think of, of, you know, all the Vonnegut books I've read in preparation for this, I, I found that a lot of them just meld into a kind of more of a feeling that yes, you get because agreed. the plots are so loose in a lot of sense. It's just, a, it's like you've said before earlier that it's more of a delivery method for a message. And, um, the message is what I feel like I retain of Vonnegut rather than like, oh, I really love this character in this book. And, and that's what he always pr- pretends to. He, there was a quote I, I skipped past earlier, actually, that he feels it's his job as a writer to convey, I, to get ideas across to society, to try to attempt to change the, the general perception that society has about certain things. And this quote that you just said is the, the purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved is one of those things I think yeah. that you're talking about. It's just one of those really poignant Vonnegut quotes that you could just, you know, it could be life changing if you take it to heart. Totally. And I think that that speaks to, you know, he he's always talking about like religion is just lies to help create communities and make people be decent people, hopefully at the end of the day. And again, in this book, he's talking about how, you know, we have no control. We never had control. We're being controlled by a bunch of aliens who literally are just using us to (laughs) fix their spaceship so they can go home. It's like the most trivial, dumb thing. They're using us as like repair people, essentially, in this grand scheme. And so it's all not only are we not in control, but the people in control are using us for a dipshit reason. So, like, we just need to, like, try to do the best we can to love and all this sort of thing. But either way... We've got to move forward into Cat's Cradle, uh, where one might argue that he really hits his stride. This is the book, I think, where he really starts to pull the sci-fi thing in, the the use of this childlike wondrousness at the world, the dreamlike prose style, the repetition of concepts and things to convey a message he's trying to convey. It all really comes together in Cat's Cradle. Yeah, uh, the it's horrors there. of war, doomsday yes. machines, all the war things stuff. that can destroy humanity very simply. I mean, it's all ties back to World War II. Its narrator tells the story of Dr. Felix Honecker, a fictional scientist who helped bring the atomic bomb into existence, as well as a humanity-destroying chemical composition called Ice-9, who, uh, which, of course, we talked about during the General Motor days. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut had this to say on the effects of Vietnam, and I think this really applies to Cat's Cradle. It's broken our hearts. It prolonged something we started to do to ourselves at Hiroshima. It's simply a continuation of that, an awareness of how ruthless we are. And it's taken away the illusion that we have some control over our government. I think we have lost control of our government. Vietnam made it clear that the ordinary citizen had no way to approach his government, not even by civil disobedience or by mass demonstration. The government wasn't going to respond no matter what the citizen did. And the second half of the book followed a religion in the Caribbean called Bacanonism. And I love reading about Bacanonism. I've been reading Cat's Cradle like crazy the past couple days. That uh, supports a moral core that is devoid in the science of the book based on serendipity and coincidence. Again, we deal in technology versus religion. And also they talk about how science is truth and how Bacanonism is actually really founded on lies but that the lies in a lot of ways are more important to society than the truth can be a lot of times and how the truth actually ends up causing society to essentially for humanity to stop existing in the case of the book Cat's Cradle. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut about religion said, it's a useful comforting sort of horseshit. You see, 
That's what I object to about preachers. They don't say anything to make anybody any happier. When there are all these neat lies you can tell, and everything is a lie, because our brains are two-bit computers and we can't get very high-grade truths out of them. But as far as improving the human condition goes, our minds are certainly up to that. That's what they were designed to do. And we do have the freedom to make up comforting lies. But we don't do enough of it. And I'm Boner Bird, and I'm here to say, Jake, let's have sex. What's fascinating, Boner Bird, is that even though you have a full human-sized erect man's penis, you don't have any visible testicles. It's just like a weird hot dog that's just dangling off the edge of what I assume is a common sparrow? <laughs> oh, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Boner Bird, here's another great quote about religion's impact on society from Kurt Vonnegut himself. It's a longing for community. This is a wholesome, uh, or rather, this is a lonesome society that's been fragmented by the factory system. People have to move from here to there as jobs move, as prosperity leaves one area and appears somewhere else. People don't live in communities permanently anymore, but they should. Communities are very comforting to human beings. So there's a um, kind of a disconnect going on where he's getting these novels, he's getting novels published like uh, Cat's Cradle and God Bless You, uh, Mr. Rosewater. That's the one that comes next about a millionaire and World War II vet who, while quite mentally unstable, establishes the Rosewater Foundation in Rosewater, Indiana to, quote, dispense unlimited amounts of love and limited sums of money to anyone who will come to his office. It was actually inspired by an accountant back in Schenectady that he <laughs> shared an office with. Uh, who would do a lot of pro bono work with people who were pro like, boner bird? <laughs> oh, boner bird! <laughs> Got him. Um, and as a result, he would hear a lot of sob stories because once you're willing to admit that you're behind on your taxes, there's not a lot left that you won't share with him. And uh, kind of just imagining how a truly benevolent person would solve the world with money and how society would react to that was a very important thing. Also, uh, there's a little bit of like regret about the war and trying to like make up for the horrors that you did in a time of conflict all, all go into play. And so uh, I think this is the one where like above all, you got to be kind comes from like yeah. it's mm -hmm. um, and so this humanist, this caring, this sentimental worldview that is coming into play in his works is completely against the lived experience of people in his life as he's just this grumpy dude who would just like come storming downstairs if you make too much noise while he's trying to write who yells at his wife who yells at his kids who has no interest in like birthday parties or anything although scattered with like moments of kindness so it's kind of this weird you know the frustration uh comes out a lot in uh letters to his editors editors to Berger, editors to, uh letters to his uh agents like he's he's flailing out there he he believes in the product his wife is supporting him faithfully and believes in him and it's just not panning out and so things are still desperate as none of these books are really making waves that's really sad because it's like that goes back to what he said at his parents graves too is that he mm. knew they could be happier but they just wouldn't be and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy he's doing the same exact thing and he's writing in a way that is like you just said more optimistic than you would think coming from a guy like him but then 
uh, here he is, this grumpy man uh, who can't seem to see the same for himself. I will also, uh, really quickly about God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, I will also say that this is the first appearance of Kilgore Trout, the unsuccessful fictional sci-fi author, the author that appears in several of Vonnegut's novels, which some view as his alter ego. The name is based on a colleague, sci-fi writer friend of his named Theodore Sturgeon that he met at the car dealership. I love what a dumb pun that is, the Sturgeon and Trout thing. <laughs> Uh, Kurt Vonnegut said, Kilgore Trout was more or less invented by a friend of mine, Knox Berger, who was my editor in the early days. He did not suggest that I do this, but he said, you know, the problem with science fiction, it's much more fun to hear someone tell the story of the book than to read the story (laughs) itself. And it's true. If you paraphrase a science fiction story, it comes out as a very elegant joke, and it's over in a minute or so. It's a tedious business to read all the surrounding material. So I started summarizing them, and I suppose I've now summarized 50 novels I will never have to write, and spared people the uh, the reading of them. <laughs> it also represents Vonnegut's big um, fear that he, no matter how prolific he is, no matter how much he sits down and just slaves away at the typewriter, he's still doomed to be old and obscure like Sturgeon was in his mm-hmm. own, like, who never escaped the sci-fi ghetto, quote, you know, so to speak. Um, so the big lifeline happens in uh, 1965, where through a series of good connections and luck and cancellations, um, Vonnegut gets an offer to teach at the Iowa creative writing workshop. Mm -hmm. He said I had gone broke, I was out of print, and had a lot of kids. So the Iowa Writers Workshop was incredibly huge for him. He compared it to rescuing a drowned man, and he spent two years there teaching. Uh, There, um, he is exposed to a lot of new writers, a lot of interesting peers. He's finally a member of a community uh, that had evaded him at Cape Cod. He is free of his seven emotionally needy children and free of his wife from whom he had become uh, alternatively, you know, sentimental and estranged from. He has an affair with one of his students. Don't worry, she was in uh, her mid thirties. So it's, uh, still only slightly gross. <laughs> One of those good affairs. <laughs> He's introduced to he concepts like metafiction are introduced. He gets to read where the like young people are at. And slowly but surely, he goes from being a weird grump who was obsessed with like how to get booked in magazines, which fell on deaf ears for a lot of these hot young writers who would later become uh, you know, their own landmark screenwriters, playwrights, uh, TV writers, novelists. You know, it's there's a reason why you've probably heard of the Iowa Writers Workshop. It's became the center for America's writing, the academic center of American writing for decades. But that free time, uh, you know, that se- that quiet, that status and that community finally gave him the perspective he needed to kind of really congeal his idea for Slaughterhouse-Five. Because he had always wanted to write about Dresden, but was stuck at the fact that his experience of it wasn't heroic, that it wasn't a classic war story, that there was no daring do. He was kind of this foolish, kind of almost joke character in a greater story. And so things like introducing uh, himself into the story playing with the way time works and just kind of accepting the American tragedy of Billy Pilgrim all come into play here. His wife and uh, two of his daughters come up with him and they love it up there, even though now he's upset that uh, his family has intruded on what was his paradise of 
cool writer guy stuff. I mean, also he's also awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship to study in Germany, which takes him back to Dresden, where he finds many of those buildings he saw in wartime still destroyed. Also helps jog his memory a little bit. He talks about he didn't remember a damn thing, and nor did his fellow soldiers when it came to the bombing of Dresden. And so all this stuff is getting super kicked back up. Um, another thing that happens is uh, be, he becomes one of the most popular teachers there during his two years. He has the biggest class. Um, he's uh, just he's at once like aloof and an anomaly where like all these pretentious kind of academic people coming in about writing. And he's still talking about how to sell a good story to Harper's Magazine. He <laughs> takes better care of uh, workshopping with students and trying to make the talks engaging um, and he becomes kind of a local celebrity and word of him kind of spreads around within the literati of the era and interest kind of perks up into his older works. He starts getting more writing gigs at the New York Times and uh, interest kind of this weird snowball effect kind of happens. He's invited to do more speaking engagements and he discovers he actually has a knack for engaging with people uh, in a in a in a lecture setting. Uh, because he has a little bit of humor about him, because he has, uh, at least he's a little more in tune with the realities of the current day. Yeah, watching him watching him work a room is great. And if you could just look up any speech he ever gave to an auditorium on YouTube, it's worth watching because he's just so charming. And so it's overall an incredibly positive experience that culminates in um, a, I believe he gets assigned to do a book review of Webster's American Dictionary for the New York Times. And he uses it to just kind of bounce off on a ton of like, you know, he keeps track of which dirty words are in the book. Uh, he <laughs> makes an especial note that he admires that they added the word hump to mean having sex. <laughs> and that catches the eye of a publisher at Delacorte who is immediately enchanted with him. Uh, this is a guy who was taking a lot of risks. Oh, um, Harrison Bergeron, which was an older story of his, gets published in the National Review of all places, which is a very conservative magazine, because obviously it's kind of a tale of equality gone amok, even though, you know, he was just writing a sci-fi story. He's just getting more and more breaks that yeah. were that had been evading him for a long time. And partly because he had an affair partly because he was free of um, his, you know, free, quote unquote, of the children he had with his loving wife and the children he swore to his sister on his deathbed, on her deathbed to take care of. <laughs> he was making progress on Slaughterhouse-Five, which was going to be the first book of that multi-book deal. Uh, was it Welcome to the Monkey House was a collection mm -hmm. of his uh, shorter works. Mm -hmm. And things were really doing well. So essentially he goes he goes to Dresden and and he's starting to make another attempt at writing his his book about that time. He talks about it even in the first chapter. It's it actually starts out incredibly autobiographical. He he talks about how he attempted many times to write about what he went through uh, via his fiction, but he never could come to something to publish until this point, finding a way to incorporate his sci-fi approach to the tale. Vonnegut said, there's never any strategy meeting about what you're going to do. You just come to work every day. And the science fiction passages in Slaughterhouse-Five, I love this quote, are just like the clowns in Shakespeare. 
When Shakespeare figured the audience had had enough of the heavy stuff, he'd let up a little, bring in a clown or a foolish innkeeper or something like that before he'd become serious again. And trips to other planets, science fiction of, of an obviously kidding sort, is equivalent to bringing on the clowns every so often to lighten things up. His main aim was to pull the trick off of writing a war novel that didn't glamorize war at all, later stating that, quote, my own feeling is that civilization ended in World War I and we're still trying to recover from that. But the problem he was mainly dealing with was actually remembering what happened during the bombing. So it, he's, he's dealing with that, and I think that's why so much of this has this fantastical approach to it and has, this, has these ideological approaches to it through the sci-fi and silliness and parallel time stuff. I love that quote. Yeah, too, because he he it just it reveals exactly his thoughts on sci-fi, and it's just what we were talking about earlier. Is he? Mm-hmm. I feel like he fell into sci-fi more than he ever set out to be a sci-fi author, because right. that's his opinion of it right there. It's the clowns. <laughs> we're gonna bring in the clowns. We're gonna like make you less sad with the sci-fi <laughs> stuff, and then we're gonna get back to the real meat of the story. So it is. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see the inside of his brain in that way. But he and he's also dealing with his memory of Dresden and a current day what's currently getting swelling up a groundswell of anti-government thought anti-war thought he said our generation did believe what its government said because we weren't lied to very much one reason we weren't lied to was that there wasn't a war going on in our childhood and so essentially we were told the truth there was no reason for our government to lie very elaborately to us well dresden had no tactical value it was a city of civilians yet the allies bombed it until it hurtled and melted and and then they lied about it all that was start, startling to us but it doesn't startle anybody now and so yeah he's dealing with that and then he's also dealing of course still with religion and Christianity. Of course, the book deals with trying to find a, the concept of a human Jesus and every that Jesus was, quote, an everyman or, or rather, quote, a bum, that sort of thing. So he's putting that into the hat. All of this stuff is is just just getting thrown into this work. Also, and this this will come up more in the next uh, episode, but Breakfast of Champions and Slaughterhouse-Five were kind of were one thing at mm-hmm. first. Both of those works. So he's working on this one just pulsing literary concept for a long time before they even get separated. But he knows he's on to something. He's, he's, he, it's, it's, again, groundswelling in his work. So this is something that blew my mind. Um, I've been literally everything that I've been talking about is uh, I've been reading through the book. Uh, and so it goes by Charles J. Shields, which is an incredibly in-depth biography that uses a lot of sources from his personal correspondence. And uh, he sent off slaughterhouse five to his new publisher. The publisher got the rights to all of his old books and started reprinting those. Uh, he got more and more, hype as a public speaker in colleges and at Notre Dame in the spring of 1968, he was giving a talk at a literary festival and right before he was about to speak, a professor got on stage and politely just said, I have to announce that Martin Luther King has been shot and ditching pretty much the majority of his speaking points. He just kind of like tried to give a more human talk and like speak to what was going on and it was met with uproarious, cathartic laughter. He was like, he met an audience that was like ripped apart with pain and he managed to like give it voice and give it form and give it some kind of just cynical but humanist order in a way. 
his wife, Jane, was consumed with the Eugene McCarthy campaign, uh, this doomed youth driven just he got he got shellacked by Nixon. But we'll we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> but it got him exposed to like hippies and, you know, just the youth movement a lot. And as he was te- as he was going from college to college and hearing how the students really responded to political talk and how they were really looking to voice their anger and frustration with the Vietnam War, he realized that he kind of those old instincts from doing public relations and Collier's magazine, he needed to transform himself into something that the audience wanted. He was getting more and more fan letters from colleges as his, uh, Old works were getting reprinted. People were kind of passing them around. Books like Cat's Cradle and Mother Night were all kind of getting a slow kind of rebirth as uh, revolutionary works. And so he made the decision in 1968, uh, just in time for the PR blitz of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, to grow his hair out, to lose some weight, and grow a big mustache like George Harrison from The Beatles. (laughs) And he kind of understood that he had to fill a role and he kind of stepped into it. In 1969, Slaughterhouse-Five uh, was released and it immediately sold out. He was profiled in Newsweek as the Orwell for the campus Orwell and Vonnegut as we knew it was born. Yep. that And that's essentially where we're going to leave it. The, the Slaughterhouse-Five's release, it's this massive, huge deal. Overnight, he becomes an incredibly famous person, pretty much, seemingly. I, I mean, he you, he also says it was gradual, but I think the actual clip from the verge of it to being it happened seemingly very fast. So now we have the Vonnegut that we know, the Vonnegut that we love, and uh, that's where we're going to leave it here. The one that released Slaughterhouse-Five that's this big part of the counterculture that's this big part that's just this prolific author there's so many more books to talk about. There's so much more to talk about just in terms of the rest of his life and death. And we're also going to talk about some of the dark stuff that would not hold up very well today, some of his beliefs and things, and and address those as well. And it all gets better, episode. right? Just like we've been saying this whole time. <laughs> I mean, it does get better at this point in our story. We finally no, have so it. so much happier. <laughs> For sure. I'm excited to go watch some lectures this week and, and check out some of that stuff. So I've been knee-deep in how shit piss sad his uh, childhood was. <laughs> if you can watch enough of his speeches so that you can know what his voice sounded like, so that you can read his books in his voice to yourself while you're reading them, it's a, it's a treat. But I like to read them in my voice. <laughs> the voice of Boner Bird. <laughs> oh, we haven't seen the last of Boner Bird. I tell you what. We're also going to get into some of the darker aspects of Boner Bird because Boner Bird had some, some, I'm going to say issue years in his You know what? 20s. It was the 80s. Boner Bird thought he was being helpful. And yeah, <laughs> attitudes have changed since Boner Bird released his manifesto. But at the time, it was a very brave series of stances. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When Boner Bird came out and screamed, I love AIDS. That was a really cool stance of his. It was Anyways. satire. Come it on. was a performance piece. You, didn't, you clearly didn't understand what was going on. Uh, so there you have it. Drew, thank you so much for joining us for part one of Kurt Vonnegut. Hey, thanks so much. I had really a lot going on, but I didn't mind canceling all of it just so I could be here with you guys. It was really a pleasure. And I hope I can come back for part two. It's funny hitting up anyone to do something. They're just like, oh, yeah, let me check. Yeah, I'm fucking free, obviously. Uh, so 
Thank you so much. And uh, of course, yeah, that's it. Check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got a bonus episode every single week for just $5 a month. You can also check me out, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Jake? Follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung for all of my brain poops. And, oh man, you really got to check out that Patreon, man. Patreon.com slash whizbrew. So many great bonus episodes. It's like it's like you get to keep listening to the podcast even after the podcast's over. Uh, Drew, do you have anything you want to promote, or are you just good to go? <laughs> hey, if I could pick up some Twitter followers, that wouldn't be bad. I'm go at for the, it. At the L200ster. The, the letter L, the number 200, S-T-E-E-R. If you look at it, it looks like rooster, so if that's confusing to you. The L200ster. Check them out it's on called Twitter. Leet Holden. I know you know. I don't know. You're not really big into video games, but it's called. <laughs> the spelling's called Leet. Follow them on Twitter. <laughs> We're you. getting out of here. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Oh, and always remember: never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to LastPodcastNetwork.com. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.